The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. By able to interact and maybe in a way that you haven't as clearly before, anybody able to really touch into what the Buddha calls the bliss of blamelessness? Or anybody notice something that was in the way of (laughs) touching into the bliss of blamelessness? Let's just take a couple minutes before I share a few thoughts about why speech, just to check in. Because I'd encourage people, like, I think it's really good to check, you know, the things that the Buddha taught to see if it's actually true for us. And then to be curious, like, well, why can't I tune into that? There's a funny story that Joseph Goldstein tells, maybe some of you have heard it, because it's a story he repeats regularly, about a time he was practicing in Burma with Saito Pandita. And uh, I guess the practice wasn't going very well. So uh, Saida Upandita said to Joseph, contemplate your sila. And uh, Joseph interpreted that to mean like I'm being bad and he wants me to you know, pay attention to it and maybe feel guilty about it and stop doing it. But that's not what Saida meant. He meant like your mind's not settling down so one way to make your mind settle down is to contemplate, to pay attention to what a good person you are, to how over the years you've restrained yourself from acting in unskillful ways. And that will make you happy. And when you're happy, your mind will settle down. And when your mind is settled down, you'll see things as they are, and you'll have insight, and you'll become wise. And then an even deeper kind of happiness will arise. So I think it, he figured it out after a while. But so this is what I would suggest. I mean, besides other contemplations around right right speech, and next week we'll be looking at um, the fifth precept of undertaking the training to refrain from intoxicants. So really getting interested in all of our addictive uh, behaviors around uh, that affect the mind, affect the clarity of the mind, whether it's chocolate or sugar or caffeine, or drugs, alcohol, even some kinds of media can have a sort of intoxicating effect on the mind that you want to... And, and this contemplation isn't about judging ourselves, it's just about getting interested in cause and effect with these things. But besides the specific contemplations around each of the precepts, to be really noticing, like, is there a bliss of blamelessness? Is there a joy of non-remorse that can be accessed? And if not, what's in the way? What seems to be in the way? So let's just take a couple minutes. Maybe people have some thoughts just from our sit tonight that you'd like to share with the group. Anything come to mind? Yeah, Raha. I think my question is... uh my question is um, the cross section of something between right speech and blame. Can you wait one second? Is that button on the second button on the left side, the second one down? Is that on? Not right. Uh-huh. Um, okay. Okay. Um, something between the right speech and blamelessness that you, you said tonight. 
um, something happened last weekend and it hasn't left my mind still bugging me in some sense um, somebody came and complained to me that this thing that you do bothers me and I said I'm so glad you came and told me I'm not gonna do it again just to make sure because it's not my intention um, so I'll try to make sure I'm not doing it but then during the talk I felt like this person that I thought has matured up hasn't been what I have thought she has matured up to and it left me with a sad feeling that I don't know where the sadness came I thought maybe I felt lonely I felt I don't know where it came from but um, and I felt quickly the sense of righteousness and I said I'm not gonna tell anybody you're not going to gonna tell anybody about this thing that happened at least for a month to make sure I'm not righteous about this because I had the feeling that I handled it pretty good and she's she's not as mature as I thought she is and um, but that sense of loneliness made me so sad I think um, so I was sad for like two days and I couldn't help telling people and the people was like my two kids not anybody farther but um, I just had the sense of telling and getting it out of my chest and I was like I'm still not sure that it is considered gossip or it is being kind to your heart you need to talk about things over and I have this issue a lot of times that the line between gossip and um, letting go of some pressure on your heart is kind of confusing for me. I tried to make sure in the middle of my talk, consider all the positive side of the issue, that why she had to stand up for her kid, or why this, why that. I can understand, I can appreciate her, but some, I, I'm sure some negative thing came out too. So I don't know where, even though I don't blame her, because I know this is where she is, but at the same time, I felt hurt. And I think I transferred that hurt to my kids that this is what happened to me and I'm sad about this. And I don't know if I crossed the line of blaming her or gossiping. Right, but you don't, it's not over. This is a great thing about these things because whatever is still left in you, Raha, you can learn how to relate to it skillfully and then you can tell your children how you're relating to it skillfully. So that, like, you know, here's the thing, when we're suffering, even if it's relatively mild suffering, that means there's something we're not seeing. I mean, at least that can be a presumption, a hypothesis. Like, if I'm suffering, instead of somebody's doing something wrong, it's more the question to ask yourself, well, if there's suffering here, right here, in my heart, then what is it that I'm not seeing clearly? What is it that's here and now, but isn't being seen clearly? So like in that situation, that would be great modeling for your kids. Like, it's not wrong. Like, gossip is when you're telling somebody about that person. But when you're tell telling somebody about what you're feeling and about how you're working with that feeling and attempting to be skillful with a feeling with an experience that's, you know, that's up, that's challenging for you, 
then you're, you're basically modeling your practice out loud with another person. Like I'm, I mean, I'm not saying you said it this way, but it's as if we say, here's what's happening, here's what I'm feeling, here's what's moving in my body and my mind, and I'm doing my best to be skillful with it. I'm doing my best not to add fuel to whatever agitation, whatever is roiling in my mind and heart. I'm trying to let things settle, but I don't know. So I'll try this, and this is what happened. I tried this, and this, you know, I'm trying to talk to you now, and it's not helping, or it is helping, right? So we're just like with our friends or with our children or whatever, we, we can be really honest about what is adding fuel to the fire, really own that. Oh, this isn't, you know, helping. Or this feels good. It felt good to talk. And to be clear about, well, what, what was it about it that made it good? You know, oh, I saw something I wasn't seeing. Yeah. Well, thanks, Raha. And even if that stuff, like I had uh, um, some stuff come up for me, too, when I was sitting but I would acknowledge that. That's why I sort of added that instruction toward the end. You know, yeah, if something comes up where you remember a time you weren't perfectly skillful, or at least you suspect that you weren't perfectly skillful, and there's some agitation, uneasiness there, then take that. That's important information. I'm not entirely clear. I was skillful because there is this reverberation of remorse, the unpleasantness of remorse around it. But that was then... It's still good information. I'm not pushing it away. But there's what's happening right now. How does that feel? Well, right now, there is no uneasiness of remorse. That memory has an uneasiness of remorse. But what's happening right now doesn't. And it's like really useful to notice that we can pay attention to different things and will have different effects on the mind. We're not, we don't always have to look at what's painful. It is very useful to look at what's painful in moments, but part of what makes that skillful to look at what's painful is to know that we don't have to. Like it's a conscious, skillful choice to look at what's unskillful or what's painful. And how do I know that it's a choice? Because I could choose to look at something else. If we can't choose to look at anything else, then it's not a skillful looking at what's unwholesome. It's a neurotic Like, I have to look at what's unskillful and what's unpleasant because I don't know anything else and because it fits my view that I'm bad and I need to confirm that because in some neurotic way, my mind's dependent on being bad instead of noticing the joy or the bliss of non-remorse, which we should also be skilled at, right? It's real important to balance because this is a shadow in Buddhist practice is to get very good or not so, I mean, not good in a skillful sense, but to become dependent on seeing what's off, what's bad. And uh, then, even though we may not know it, there's some aversion in the mind or maybe a lot of aversion, a lot of judgment in the mind. Yeah, thanks, Raha, for sharing that. Yeah, Helen. I have something kind of like Raha in the sense that I don't even want to come to this class because when I do, it brings up the feeling of um, that I haven't solved the problem correctly yet. 
But there's also part of me that says it's not over. I don't want to go into the details, but that you don't have all the answers yet to do it skillfully. And so I got a little bit closer to a better answer, but it still doesn't feel totally clean. Um, But I feel like at most things, I'm a pretty good person. So this is hard because it doesn't feel quite right yet to me. Yeah, but this is, this is a little bit what I was trying to say with Raha, this um, attachment to perfection. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I've had that in other areas. Yeah. So we, we do want to be really interested in the ways we leak or break the precepts. It, there, it is interesting, and it's painful, but the pain itself does the work. We don't need to tell a story about you know, how bad we are, because the actual remorse, if there is remorse, seeing that, being intimate with that, is all we need to do. We don't need lacerating guilt. We don't need some beautiful, not beautiful, I'm just being sarcastic, this some dramatic story about how bad we are or how we should be able to do this more skillfully or I shouldn't be defensive. No, I was defensive. And I know that there was some unskillfulness around that defensiveness because there's this leftover reverberation we call the unpleasantness of remorse. And so if there's the reverberation of remorse, it's because on some intuitive level, the mind suspects what it did was unskillful, was unhelpful. That's, it's like, that's how we know the difference between skill and unskillfulness. It's like, what is the effect in the mind stream? What impression is left? By, but we, we don't want to just uh, base it on a, a surface looking, but we want to settle into it. And we you know, want to check on it more than a couple times. So we go, oh yeah, that... That left an unpleasant taste. Well, this might not be resolved for six months, but I want to be skillful now, you know? Right, but, but <laughs> being skillful now in terms of the practice means that to whatever degree you've been unskillful in the past, you've learned the lesson. So you've transformed the pain of remorse into a teacher. Like you've distilled it so that the pain of remorse reminds you what you weren't seeing in that moment. That's all you need to do. Yeah. And then that, if, if anything's going to help you in the future, if something similar happens, is having done that distillation, well, now the mind understands why there was an unpleasantness of remorse, because it's really understood, oh yeah, there was this motivation, and you know, we can use those three wholesome and three unwholesome motivations. So there's the motivation of greed, the motivation of aversion, the motivation of delusion, or (coughs) thinking we already know, thinking that we don't have to pay attention because we already know, or we don't have to pay attention. We can be distracted, you know, and the three wholesome. And you'll just notice, like, to whatever degree your action, your words, the way you were thinking, came out of the unwholesome motivations, then there's going to be that unpleasant reverberation we call remorse. Oh, yeah, that doesn't feel good. Yeah, Rebecca. Leslie, did you have your hand up too? Okay. So maybe we'll end with Rebecca. Um, 
I had a conversation with somebody re- very recently, and in this conversation I realized, or I had the thought, the very strong thought, that this person might be experiencing some discomfort with another person, the same kind of discomfort I've been feeling. And there was a moment of, ooh, I could really connect with this person right now. <laughs> and then another moment of, is that how I want to connect with this person? And then I realized this, first of all, it could be misreading. But if I'm not, and if we engage in this, if I say, hey, are you feeling, you know, whatever, that could just be a whole quagmire of bringing that person into an unwholesome state as well. So it's almost like compassion for not wanting to drag that person or me into this situation came to the rescue. So again, compassion to the rescue. And then it, I just didn't go there at all. Mm-hmm. And it feels really good. So that would be the blamelessness. It feels really good. Like I'm like, well, you know, I could connect with that, but that's an ugly connection. And I'd rather have a cleaner connection with this person than that. There is also the thought, if this person needs to vent, if this person is feeling, you know, like what Raha talked about, it is important to let this stuff out, but then they need to find a way to do it too. I just thought, if I engage this, it's not going to be healthy for either of us. So I just let it go and let it blow by. I see that as a real fruit of good practice. I feel that, see that in my life too. A lot of uh, impulses to want, like when there's, like with my partner, when there's been a difficult interaction, wanting to talk to her about what happened. And then not that that would be necessarily bad, but a lot of the times, like Rebecca was saying too, you know, just having a clear sense of what that's about. And for me, often what I'll discern is like, I don't like the feeling I'm feeling. And I suspect if I talk about it, it won't feel so badly. But when I actually think about that, I go, no, it's not going to help. And like you said, I thought so well, you know, that dragging somebody in the muck because we don't like the feeling of the muck instead of this distillation. If I'm feeling like I'm in the muck, if it's feeling bad, then... There's some teacher here that needs to be distilled. And then that's how we transform the pain of remorse into something, something useful. And then it, then it still hurts in a way, but now it's a useful pain. It's not a tormenting pain. It's like a, a beautiful beacon. Please don't do that again. And it really feels like wisdom. You know, it's like a wound, but it, it sort of is a kind of wisdom, like, yeah, we carry these, like, I've learned that lesson. I don't have to do that again. Yeah. Well, let's leave it here. And that would be nice to check in with the large group again next week when you have more time to play with it. Um, and, and why not we just make it an intention to both informally during the day and formally during part of your sit. It doesn't need to be long to just see if you can tune in to the bliss of non-remorse, to whatever degree as a very stable, wholesome source of joy, right? It's interesting. Some of you know the story of Agulimala, the mass killer at the time of the Buddha. You know, he had a garland of fingers 
999 fingers. He took one finger from every, every one of his victims, and he needed to kill one more person. And he decided he'd kill his mother, I think. And then the Buddha somehow psychically knew this and decided this was the time to intervene. So the Buddha showed up, and, and he became a monk, and, uh, and then shortly after became an arhat, fully awake, and uh, he was still tormented by people because they were frightened of him. You know, they recognized him, even though he was wearing robes and had a shaved head, and they would throw things at him, and, you know. But um, I forget exactly how this story goes, but he wanted to offer something, and I think it was a pregnant woman who was having a hard time with her delivery. And uh, so he asked the Buddha what he could do. And he said, well, you could contemplate your sila, like, based on my commitment to non-harming, may you be free from pain, may your pregnancy go well, the delivery go well, or something like that. That the sort of connecting the good karma, the, the sort of freedom from remorse, and then he reminded the Buddha that he was a mass killer. And the Buddha said, well, then make it from the time or I ordained as a monk, <laughs> I have not harmed anybody. And even to this day, like in Buddhist culture, that sutta where Agulimala, which his name means the garland of fingers, right? That's what that means. <laughs> that was his name. Um, even to this day, pregnant women chant that, right, that resolve that based on the goodness, the purity of my sila, the power of the joy of non-remorse, since I ordained as a monk, may that goodness, that merit, protect you in your delivery, giving birth to your child. And so it's just the, the idea, I mean, these are just stories, of course, but the idea of the story is there is real power in recognizing uh, the purity of action, like action, words, thoughts, actions, coming out of kindness, coming out of compassion, coming out of contentedness, non-stinginess, generosity, right? That that action, because we have so much animal conditioning, being afraid, being out there for ourselves, that to overcome that through awareness and wisdom, to overcome that, to not be governed by that, is a powerful thing. And it should feel that way. You know, when we notice it, that that power of restraint, that power of aspiring to live in a good way, when we notice it, it should, it should make an impact on the mind. We should feel like, oh yeah, that feels good. So this week, let's check that out, if it actually makes us feel good. If it's a cause for joy, a stable kind of joy. More stable than any of you doing the Pokemon thing, which I can barely understand what it is. <laughs> but I hear everyone's entranced by it. <laughs> Maybe your kids. So anyway, tonight and then next week a little bit, we'll talk about right speech. We don't have that much time before we'll break into groups, but enough time to kind of shape how you might share. So in this sharing tonight, anything that's relevant in your life around the second precept, undertaking the training not to take what hasn't been given. And there's just so much interesting territory 
about what we take as ours, what we consume, what we possess, and what does it mean for something to have been given, right? And when are we taking more than we need, more than's given? Because it's, it's very interesting in terms of economics and having money in the bank. Like, because we can purchase it, does that mean it's freely given? Or do we have to be attentive to all that was behind it, you know, before it showed up in the store where we purchased it? What makes it freely given? And then the, sec- the third precept, rather, undertaking the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. So what does that look like in my life? What's interesting for me in that place, in that territory of my life? And then the fourth precept, undertaking the training to refrain from harmful or false speech. And I want to dig into that a little bit. Um, The Buddha, I mean, there's basically four aspects of speech, and it's nice to just keep the four in mind because it really rounds out that teaching on wise speech. So speaking the truth, and the interesting thing about the truth is nobody owns it. We, so part of speaking what is true is having a sense of humility. It's like our truth is rel- relative, or it's, it's our truth right now. Given what I know, given what I've seen, this to me right now is what seems true. But I know that I don't know. I don't own all the perspectives. It's like together... We need each other, actually, to have a deeper sense of what's true. We have to hear from everybody, in a way. We don't really can't say what's true. And so part of speaking the truth is that not losing that sense of humility or the relativeness of what we see as being true. It's a momentary construction, like my mind in this moment sees this as being true. And then uh, non-harshness, so the tone of the speech, and even body language that goes with the speech. And then are we using speech, like what's the agenda? Is it to harm? So even though it might be true, it could still be used as a weapon. Who in the room hasn't used truth as a weapon? You know, zingers, it's like, it's... It's, you, we can really get even with people when we've got the truth on our side, you know, that they don't want to see, they don't want to hear, and then we just throw it, on a, throw, throw it at them as a weapon. Yeah, take this. You know, this is true. So using speech in a way to hurt, like it's a weapon. And then the last is idle speech, refraining from idle speech. So speech that isn't useful, that doesn't have a purpose. And the Buddha, as you know, most of you know this, and um, I sent you um, a couple links, and there's even more new links on our webpage, thebuddhastudies.comgrowmeditation.org. But I sent to the email list a couple. um, One is just a set of reflections that can really open this up. And then another are some suttas where the Buddha talks about what's right, why speech, 
And so you can talk about wanting little or renunciation. You can talk about contentedness. You can talk about seclusion, like the mind secluded from sense, desire, from craving. You can talk about effort, what's wise effort. You can talk about sila and the joy of uh, non-remorse. You can talk about settledness or samadhi. You can talk about wisdom and you can talk about freedom. So you can't talk about the Republican Convention. <laughs> I caught myself wanting a break in the middle of preparing, you know, and checking the news, hoping that something would be provocative and interesting. And it was so big, I think partly because I was doing this work, preparing, I just felt this very appropriate wave of disgust. Because I had just, like, I don't know, probably seven minutes, eight minutes earlier, read the list of what you shouldn't talk about. <laughs> relatives, kings and queens, you know, courtly business, which for us would be politics, and, you know, furniture and fashions and foods that we like. And, you know, as lay people, we'll probably have some of those conversations. But even when we're talking about the weather or we're talking about a restaurant, what we should be able to discern in the conversation is, I really love you, and the, way, the only way I see to sort of convey the love is to do this dance of talking about food right now. But what's really going on is that we love each other and we're just sharing space. And the way we feel comfortable sharing space is talking about the Minnesota Twins or talking about this or talking about that. But we should know the difference when we look that it isn't actually important, the restaurant, the weather, politics, or whatever it is we're talking about. I mean, sometimes the details of life are important, but a lot of what we're talking about, it isn't that important. But what could be important is you're a human being, I'm a human being, and there's something beautiful about sharing space and being undefended. And because we're Minnesotans or you know, Americans, the way we do that is we have these little dances we call conversations about things that aren't ultimately that important. But let's, it can still be relevant, you know, in terms of uh, an exchange of metta, which is a wholesome thing, a beautiful thing. Or just our way of saying, I see you, I care about you, and now I'm going to be on my way. Except it lasted five minutes because we were talking about how humid it was or you know, how about those twins or whatever it might be. So the last thing I'll share about right speech, because it would just be really nice to, you know, it really comes down, there's a, the Buddha has a lot of teachings, but it really comes down to something simple, like, was it truthful? And what, what I'm saying is the motivation to reveal what to me seems to be true now in this moment and is my motivation for what I'm saying for it to be useful? Is it useful and truthful? Right? And you'll see when you read what the Buddha has to say and all of our teachers have to say about wise speech, it really comes down to is it useful? Is it truthful? Is it both useful and truthful? And even then, we want to think about the right time, the right place, the right body language and tone. Even then, we want to you know, be sensitive to those things. I mean, I see this all the time 
I, you know, there are a lot of people who have told me, and it's, it's still surprising, you know, that when I'm talking to them, they feel attacked. And, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like I'm attacking them. It seems like I was speaking what for me was the truth. Um, but it's that body language and tone, and perhaps for me, an unawareness of a power differential, you know, that... Uh, like we're not only responsible for the motivation behind our words, we're also responsible as best we can to sense what the impact of our words will be. Because everybody, everybody's heart, you know, there's a particular context to where those words are landing. And so we want to be interested, but we want to be attentive. Like what kind of impression, what kind of impact are these words having? Because it's really easy to, for us, for me, to be insensitive, to sort of feel like, well, I'm speaking the truth, you know, I'm doing my job, but not aware of the force, or, of course, not aware of all the emotions, the tone that may be behind our words. So this would be a great thing to share in the small groups tonight, experiences where you're learning about the impact of our words, both learning about not just what seems to be true on the surface about what you're saying, but what are the more subtle intentions, motivations that you may be less aware of. And then learning like what kind of impact words have. Sylvia Burstein has this little gimmick she does sometimes when she's teaching about wise speech. She'll ask people to raise their hand, like anybody in the room still hurting from words that were spoken over a year ago. You know, some people raise their hand. And then she keeps going, you know. How about, and eventually ends up like, how about 30 years ago? Anybody still hurting from some words that were spoken to you 30 years ago? I bet a lot of us would raise our hands because they, they really pack a punch. It's like uh, really easy to cause harm. And then the other thing, I sent out that article last week Buddhist Sexual Ethics by Winton Higgins. And it was this uh, article by a layperson uh, talking about um, how he appreciated sort of the Buddhist view of sex and not so much, you know, what's naughty and what's nice, but just about not harming, not about the right way or what's allowable and what's not allowable, but just about not using sexual activity to harm, being really sensitive about harming others. And then, uh, then the two monks piped in at the end. Hopefully you read that section too, which was very interesting because it's not so much that they even disagree, but they're just talking about things in a different level that, yeah, it doesn't really matter whether, you know, sort of like what kind of sex you like as long as you're not harming. But the point is sex and all other sense pleasures are just that. They're just sense pleasures and ultimately not of much value. It seems a little bit provocative, you know, because mostly we like our sense pleasures. But it's really, in terms of that second precept, you know, part of what causes us to cause harm and then get uh, oppressed by the feeling of remorse is we want our sense pleasures. And then we can justify taking more than's given, 
We can justify manipulating others because of our sexual desires, you know, using words in ways that harm because of our craving. Because we think sense pleasure is it. You know, is the cat's meow? Is that what it is? Cat's pajamas? Anyway, something special. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so it's really interesting, like in all this work around sila, if we're not weakening the force of craving in the mind, it's a real setup to think that precepts are important because it's really hard to keep the precepts when having ice cream, having sex, having power, having respect, or whatever it is we crave is essential for happiness, then we're likely to be able to justify harming other beings because the thing we crave is at the top of the list. And we're willing, people are willing to sacrifice even their own children when you know something they desire is above it. So I'm sure there will be rich conversations about any of these middle three precepts tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.